Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, Christy Bendetti. Christy and I start the conversation discussing Christy's childhood in New Jersey and her subsequent move to Colorado. We talk about the split-state dynamics between politics in North and South Jersey and the increasingly polar political dialogue in the country at large. We discuss our current economic system, whether it's possible to restructure it in a way that maximizes human happiness and how best to do so if it is. We ask whether the younger generation today is more open-minded and or group-minded relative to older generations. We then dive into the nuances of the transgender movement and discuss free speech. Christy then describes her experience of private school and the divisions between socioeconomic classes. We next consider one of the country's most polarizing topics, abortion. After that, Christy describes her relationship with her immediate family members and with religion. We consider the nature and structure of time, and Christy describes her bad trips on psychedelics. From there, we contrast spirituality with religion and consider the nature of love. We end the conversation considering ideas of clarity and perfect order. This outro is called In a Moment of Clarity. Outro is available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. If you like the show, please drop a five-star review and subscribe on Substack, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please enjoy. Christy Bendetti, welcome to the Entangled Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> me too, me too. Excited for your first podcast? Yeah, definitely a little nervous. I don't like totally love being on the spot without like much preparation, but I think it'll be good. We'll just yeah. flow. Yeah, no, I think it'll be super fun. I love uh, keeping it organic and just, you know, seeing how it goes. And like we were just talking about before we started rolling, you know, we know each other super well. And so I think that yeah. a lot of ways we could take the conversation. Totally. So yeah, maybe to kick it off, why don't you just walk the listeners through a little bit about your background, where you're from, and how you ended up in Denver? Yeah, so I'm originally from Bridgewater, New Jersey, best state in the country, <laughs> love New Jersey. Grew up in central Jersey, went to a private school there, and then I went to college in upstate New York, Hamilton College. After college, I moved to New York City with most of my friends from Hamilton, started working in advertising, marketing and advertising, lived in New York City for about six and a half years, moved to Denver in 2019, about a year before COVID. And I've been working remotely ever since then, which is awesome. I was a little bit ahead of the remote train. And then now I work at Amazon in ad sales. I've been there for about three and a half years. And it's an interesting place to be. There are definitely trying to revert back to the pre-COVID lifestyle. So I'm not really enjoying that too much. But yeah, I live in Denver because my sister moved here about 15 years ago and I kind of have always followed in her footsteps and just wanted to be close to her. We're super tight and she's my only sibling. And so um, she started having kids and put roots down here and I just knew I wanted to be close to her. So that's kind of why I'm here. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, you start talking about, you know, being from New Jersey and how it's the best state. Um, and I love New Jersey, um, but it also is a state that can get a lot of flack as is Ohio, you know, where I'm from. So tell me about, you know, what, what do you think New Jersey is all about? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first thing that people think when they think of New Jersey is the Jersey Shore. Everyone cracks that joke to me when they say, like, when I say I'm from New Jersey. And I'm like, yeah, but no. If you drive out of Manhattan or drive away from the Jersey Shore, even if it's just 20 to 30 minutes west, the state is actually beautiful and not ratchet <laughs> like you would expect it to be. Not snookies running around no, everywhere. No, no snookies. <laughs> There's a lot of open space. West New Jersey is like all farmland. My brother-in-law's family grew up on a farm and they have over a hundred acres and it's just, it's kind of farmlandy. But I mean, you do get, it's like a very interesting balance because you do get that liberal mindset coming from being on the outskirts of Manhattan and really close to obviously one of the biggest cities in the world. But then you also do get that kind of Republican mindset from Mm -hmm. the more Western side of the state and the Southern-ish part of the state where it was more like farmland or there is more of that, I don't know, Republican mentality. But I thought it was a great place to grow up. I think I mentioned this. I went to private school, but which was an interesting experience. I think that (laughs) definitely shaped me in certain ways, but yeah, I don't know. It was a great place to grow up. It was very chill and we would, but we would still go into New York city. So I had that experience in high school a little bit with some of my friends. Like when we first got our licenses, we would drive into Manhattan and try to get into bars and then drive home at night. It was kind of like you're living on the edge a little bit, like on the edge of the fast lane, but not quite because you're still kind of like far away from Manhattan. So yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting the way that you're explaining New Jersey, too. And I'd say from my um, experience, you know, spending time in the state, um, you know, I lived in Connecticut and New York Mm -hmm. for, you know, a a period of about probably three years altogether. Mm -hmm. So I've traveled to New Jersey, you know, mostly northern New Jersey, Hoboken and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I also have some friends from southern Jersey and I've spent some time in Philly. And I definitely get that sense of It's kind of a divided state where you've got, like you said, kind of the liberal New Yorkers Mm -hmm. and you've got the more kind of salt of the earth, Southern Jersey, like Philly, kind of like grittier vibe. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And it's, I I don't know, I feel like it's probably healthy to have that better balance between just being in an echo chamber of the Manhattan liberals versus, you know, being in like a rural neighborhood too. It is. It was interesting. Actually, my parents are kind of representative of that. My dad is very liberal and my mom is very conservative. Uh, I don't know how they've gotten along for so long. Actually, they they haven't really, but yeah, we were kind of like a split household. It was interesting. But then as we grew up, my sister and I started leaning more towards the liberal side of things. And yeah. um, Yeah. Do you feel like the split between liberal and conservative has gotten more extreme? Oh yeah. You mean in the country? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 100%. I mean, we're basically like a completely divided nation. Yeah. No question. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? I think that I would... So I think that people are just getting, like, rightfully so, like, more and more comfortable expressing their opinions on social issues because of things like social media and, I don't know, just, yeah, primarily social media. And when people feel like they, this is going to sound, I'm trying to like think of the right way to say this because like, I do think everyone should have a voice. Mm -hmm. 
I think that people, when they think that they can have a voice, they inherently think that their voice is like correct and is mm-hmm. like the end all be all yeah, sure. of things, right? Like I don't like taking COVID, for example, not to dive into the most hot topic of all time and like the most divisive thing ever. But I think that like when people, it's totally fair and valid to have your own opinion and to have your own autonomy over your own life and your decisions of how you want to run your body and your children's bodies and those things. Right. But that doesn't mean that that's like mutually exclusive from things like science is real and there actually is like data and evidence that XYZ is effective and things like that. Right. So Going back to your original question, I think that in a weird way, and I don't know what the solution is to this, Yeah, the fact that people feel empowered to be so, so, so vocal about their opinions has just created this dichotomous country where it's they you can just feel like your opinion is fact kind of and operate as such, if that makes sense. Do you know what I'm saying? Kind of. <laughs> Are you... I, is it are you saying it's like an echo chamber or not but it's not exactly that's not exactly where you're yeah, getting at. yeah no i mean i do think that there's definitely yeah like i mean that's, that's a separate thing. issue for sure yeah that's and i think that's also caused by social media maybe like, the better way to put it is it's given it's you it's given a, a voice to the loudest people to be extra loud yes and those and i think that those people are not always necessarily who's to say what's right or wrong but i don't know i do think that there are ways that you can argue down to the base of certain topics i'm kind of being like cerebral right now we can pick an example but and get to a point where you kind of can't really argue your way out of it but like people feel like they could because like they just keep digging their heels in yes Uh and like just because that's their opinion that is accurate and that is fact and i don't yeah. I think that's like where like a big issue in this country It's like we're talking past is each other coming always. From. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a big part of that is related to the lack of like critical thinking and like education in this country. Like I mm-hmm. I believe like the one of the biggest issues in the country is just like a lack of education. Like we have an education epidemic. Like people are not getting educations with like books that have different perspectives yeah. when they're not they're taught it's, to it's crazy that, like, when yeah. you look at like how television has cut into reading time over the generations it's really sad yeah well have you ever did you ever hear that like guy from youtube who's like hired by google to create their their like youtube algorithm that feeds you videos it sounds kind of familiar, but I keep, keep going. I forget his name, but this is like the echo chamber thing. But he mm. was basically the one who created the algorithm that we use today yeah, on like yeah. YouTube and Instagram, where it's like, this person has an interest in purple notebooks, which is sitting right in front of me. And now <laughs> the next like 30 videos you're going to see are about like notebooks and the color purple and purple notebooks. And yeah. so it's, you're basically only seeing the same things over and over again and if you're not in an environment like in a classroom, for example, where you're like exposed to other things, you're only going to think that one way because that's what social media yeah. is feeding you. No, and that's right. like what 
people are ingesting, whether it is just like media or like even literal magazines that you're getting in the mail. That is all running off of an algorithm too. That's not just a manual thing. It's, oh, this person donated to the GOP and now they're going to get this pamphlet. Like, right. I think it's like, it's interesting. It feels to me, young people have gotten progressively less open-minded and you would expect the opposite. And it's really sad. And I think a lot of it is because everything is so filtered and there's such an agenda and like these, Uh, I mean, you work in advertising, you know how smart all of this is and it's man, they like, Mm -hmm. and you know, and this is like a broader discussion on the economic system as a whole. But I think that the whole system of capitalism as we've called it, which I, I think is frankly a big misnomer, right? What we've developed is kleptocracy and, you know, yeah. there's an oligarchy in every single yeah. industry. Just look yeah. at who, you know, controls it all. So anyway, it's like, how do we keep what is great about entrepreneurialism and that that spirit of growth, but also figure out a way that is more equitable organizational structure to run business and to run the economy as a whole in the future. Oh my God. If I could answer that question, I'd be like, I don't know, Janet Yellen. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have thoughts, but I I, I don't know, you know, I don't come from like an economics background, but I do believe that there are some, listen, at the end of the day, what do you think matters the most? I, I personally think it's like, human happiness and the lack of suffering. Yeah. Right. And I don't necessarily mean from like a utilitarian standpoint, because that gets into some weird stuff too, where it's, well, then if one person is a hundred percent happy, but that means that 50 people are suffering 1%, like, you know what I mean? I mean, I mean like genuinely the greatest number of people with the highest percentage of Mm. happiness. Yeah. And yeah. Like historically, like if we look at countries that have been able to do that successfully, there are a small handful of them and they are Denmark (laughs) and Denmark. (laughs) (laughs) And I always use that as an example because I feel like people are always like, well, what's an example of, or people are always like, well, we can't tax people 65%, I mean, that's obviously extreme, but, and, and maintain like a free market and it's okay. Yeah. Maybe we can't do that, but maybe we will instead be able to give people like unlimited free healthcare and like that will ultimately make people happier than having a free market. I don't know. That is where the happiest people in the world live. But the problem is for someone who is as jaded by the government as me. Like I agree with you. And I used to like wholeheartedly advocate that. Like mm-hmm. I was super supportive of Obama's healthcare plan and all that stuff. The problem is I just think that our government is so inept and corrupt that like it yeah. ends up most of that gets wasted. And yeah. so what it ends up happening is you're not helping the poorest. In fact, you're subsidizing the, you know, rich men north of Richmond with your tax dollars. Cause most of it ends up making it their way into their pockets or, you know, just, yeah. Spent stupidly. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, that, I mean, that is kind of what I think is ironic about that is like that technically is a traditional Republican mindset. Totally. That's let's give as much power as we can to the quote unquote individual, which ends mm-hmm. up being the corporation, right? That's like in the case of my company, Amazon, that's like mm-hmm. being like, let's give them a tax break so that you they can then go create their own parks and schools and 
like venues for sports and concerts and all these things. And it's, I don't know, like I've never, does that really work? I've never really seen like a great example of that end of the spectrum working, but I do feel like we have a good example of the other end of the spectrum working. I, but I know I agree with you. I don't know. I don't think that the solution is let's give all the power to all these like super corrupt people, but if you ever watch, I don't know, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but if you've ever seen like House of Cards or like yeah, yeah. Or those shows and stuff, mm-hmm. it's, you see that like ultimately at the end of the day, like everyone has to be in bed with everyone else to get their agenda pushed totally. through. You, and you know those guys are loosely based on the Clintons. <laughs> yeah, I did know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. But I think it's interesting that you say that. What did you say earlier about the youth in America that they're like becoming more closed minded? Yeah, exactly. I don't think that. You don't think that? I think Gen Z is, well, they're like the first generation to obviously feel, or probably to feel the most comfortable with coming out as gay or bi or trans or. But see, that I would push back on that because I think that they're becoming uniformly parroting of a very specific narrative that. We don't know if it all, frankly, holds up under close scrutiny. So I think that they're becoming more group-minded, maybe, is the better way to think about it. Not necessarily closed-minded, but... Oh, okay. But yeah, um, lacking of independent thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's the South Park episode with the goths. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Because, look, I, I think in particular with some of the stuff that's happening in the transgender movement that people are making really big mistakes and moving way too fast on some pretty important stuff. Like mm-hmm. I, I came out recently with an essay pretty critical about the concept of gender affirming care and giving out like puberty blockers yeah. and, and yeah. these like mutilation surgeries. This stuff yeah. is happening at a very rapidly increasing pace. Mm-hmm. And there are some, you know, like always vested interests that aren't always looking out for the best interests of the kid. And so I think we collectively need to just take a breath and just really examine everything we're doing and we can't have a system where people are afraid to say what I just said because they're afraid of being canceled for being a bigot. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I am fully in support of the LGBTQIA community. I think people Mm -hmm. like who feel like they want to be trans like should be, but I do agree with you that like, I don't really, I just don't understand why you would allow a child to make that decision where, yeah. you know, there's an age of consent for having sex and there's an age at which your brain is fully developed, which is why you can't drink alcohol before that age, because otherwise it affects your development and things like that. So like, why would you give someone a very strong medication to change their makeup yeah. before they can actually, like, I don't. I think that everyone should be able to make their own decision, but of a certain age, you know. Yeah, and I don't think that a parent should be able to make that decision for their kid if the kid is five or whatever. I don't know. But once they reach a certain age, it's then you can just do whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. But that's just not how society works. You can't drive until you're 16. You can't fight in the army until you're 18. Why can Mm -hmm. you take these medications and completely change your body? You know. Yeah. And it's just, you know, all these pharmaceuticals, they like just, they rush these products to market. They don't ever really do real long-term safety studies. So it's, you know, I hear the gender affirming care argument for why you should have it is, you know, your kid is at risk for suicide yeah. if they're trans, That's right? That's true. But then I think that just that actual, that argument, and like you were saying earlier, look, there's stats on both sides. You know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this by any means, mm-hmm. but like I've actually heard there's pretty strong statistics that 
post-transition, the suicide rates are actually much higher and that most kids, when they're going through puberty, that's kind of when your maximum body dysmorphia is naturally. Mm-hmm. And that the vast majority of these kids, if you just let them be and, and not push this kind of stuff on them, then they just grow out of it and they end up being mm-hmm. comfortable in the body in which they yeah. are born. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any kid should have anything pushed on them at all mm-hmm. in any realm. Totally. Like, example, last night I was babysitting my niece She's five and she was signed up for dance class and she was having a fit, didn't want to go to dance class. And instead of my sister being like, you signed up for this. We paid the money. You have to go. She was like, we, you don't have to go. Yeah. You don't want to go. Don't go. But we're, we're going to cancel the class. We're not going to keep paying and have you not go every week. But kind of like you can make your own decision. I don't care. Yeah, I'm not going to push it on you. Same thing with finishing your food. You don't want to finish this rice? Don't finish it because that's going to create an unhealthy habit. Yeah. I don't know. But I think one of the things that you just said that like really sparked something is I think that we have like little to no way of getting to the end result for these types of statistics. Like That is the problem. Like when we're talking in these conversations and Mm -hmm. what I was saying with the COVID stuff and anything, Mm -hmm. it's if we had a real number that we could trust on anything, we would actually be able to make like way more informed decisions about these things. But it's until then, like, why are we pushing? I I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a good point. And it brings me back to something you said earlier when we were talking about like speech and, and kind of the louder voices and You know, you mentioned that the continued polarization is maybe part of with kind of the social media and everyone having a voice online. And, and, you know, that's kind of amplified people's willingness to be extremely loud and in an an environment where, you know, maybe you wouldn't do that necessarily if you were in person. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I agree with you in broad strokes, but I think that. The difference for me is the issue isn't necessarily that people are too loud. I think it's that it's hard to it's hard to filter out the noise. And I think that. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I mean, that kind of goes back to what we were saying about like the algorithm stuff. Totally. Totally. That's noise. You can hashtag anything and have your video that could be grounded in zero percent reality come up on someone's feed that's noise. That's the yeah, definition yeah, totally. of noise. That's literal fake news. Mm-hmm. That is the mm-hmm. definition of fake news. Mm-hmm. When people who are not experts on something, who don't have an education in something, who are self-proclaimed experts mm-hmm. purport news as if it's fact. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. And if you don't have a way of critically thinking and de- delineating but what's right and what's wrong for yourself that it's like from yeah. an educational background or whatever it is, yeah. like it's nearly impossible to filter out. No, I agree. And I think for me, one of the reasons I'm, I've again become so disillusioned with kind of the establishment narrative is I think that problem unfortunately extends into mainstream media and folks that we historically thought were very trusted independent news sources. And now it's, oh, you look again and you follow the money and it's like, mm-hmm. what do you know? Two, you know, three fourths of CNN's, but, or, you know, all the news budgets is mm-hmm. paid by big pharma and yeah. stuff. And it's, so yeah. it's, I'm curious, what are your views on the trustworthiness of the media? <laughs> My God, I don't know. I mean, I think that I've read. But again, it's like who published this? I read somewhere that the most unbiased news source is the Associated Press. 
you know anything about that? And no, I, mean, I, mean, I, I know, know these are surprised by yeah. that. So if I am really trying, if I'm trying to find the truth in something, mm-hmm. I'll often go to the Associated Press or there's one. Oh no, is it Politico? No, that's something. That is a website. Yeah, no, that seems not right. Oh my god, I don't know. I know it's like, how do you trust? what's coming out of these sources. Yeah. I don't know. I think it just continues to go back to what I keep saying of just, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. And that's why it's like education's responsibility to teach people how to critically think, right? Yeah. To be like, okay, like Fox is saying this, CNN is saying this. The truth is probably somewhere a little bit in the middle. Yeah. Well, and then that gets back into the group think question, right? Do you think our schools are teaching kids to critically think? So luckily, no, I don't think they are. Luckily, I was lucky enough to have an education that definitely did. Me too. Yeah, and, and I think we're the rarity. I think I you're think right. I think so too. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think that people are, I mean, I don't, yeah, no, people are definitely not being taught how to critically think. And especially in places where they're like banning books and telling people that, yeah, they can't, I don't even know. Yeah. So, you know, again, just echoing, I I think we were really blessed to have really great school experiences. Now, when you were talking about your background, you said, you know, I went to private school uh, and you're like, that's a whole experience. So what did you mean by that? (laughs) I just meant that it was, I mean, it was like a very quote unquote prestigious private school. And I do feel like everyone was very, I don't know. I don't want to like shit on the people, but I don't know. Silver like, spoon in hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Silver spoon in hand and thought they were like better than everyone else. And I definitely came from a lower socioeconomic background. Um, Did you feel like you had a chip on your shoulder because of that? No, I didn't necessarily feel like I had a chip on my shoulder. But I, I do feel like it just made me like look at things a little bit differently. And I also maintained friendships with a lot of friends from the public school of like the town that I grew up in. Yeah. And I feel like I was able to like kind of like toe the line back and forth between the two worlds and in a good way, but mm-hmm. like kind of helped me keep that perspective of, okay, not everyone's parent like works at Goldman Sachs and like they, not every single person in the world has a trust fund. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's just kind of what I meant by that. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a good learning for sure. And it's it gets back to us kind of living in like different worlds almost, even though we're all, you know, Americans like it is just such a kind of microcosm by microcosm type, you know, country and, and world we live in yeah. still. Okay, I have a question for you. Yeah. Are you comfortable talking about abortion? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> okay, so what I don't like is when there's like hip hop like big hypocrisy in like the way that certain parties like approach topics. So again, not to be yeah, like yeah. shitting on Republicans, but, and I don't want to, I hate even using that term because it's so blanketed, but like Republicans saying that they don't believe in abortion and that they don't believe in, you know, a woman's right to choose. How is that not considered big government? Like that to me is yeah. like the epitome of let's get in and let's, govern everything about an individual and uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, no, keep going. I've got, I've got a lot of thoughts about this. I'm just trying to get my, my mind. Yeah. I'm just, 
I don't know. I just am trying. I always try to reconcile that when Republicans have that POV. I mean, and again, I don't even want to say that because statistically, I do know that the stat is that 69 to 70% of Americans believe in abortion. And that doesn't represent or align with the percentage of people in the United States that are Republican. So it's definitely not like representative of that. And that's why it's I think the way that we elect people to our Supreme Court who actually make these types of decisions is just like sure fucked. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's like an interesting topic to talk about when you're like trying to figure out like how to reconcile social issues with certain sides. And then another topic I have to talk about, (laughs) yeah, which I like is and I'd love your opinion on is when people say, oh, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. Yeah, yeah. That is inherently at odds with itself. Like you kind of can't. I don't know if I agree with that, but keep keep going. Yeah. I mean, a lot some people don't. I'd love to hear your opinion, but the where we put our money dictates how important and the priority level of social issues. Right. So if we say, oh, I'm socially liberal and I believe that everyone should have the same level of free education up until eighth grade. Yeah. It's okay. That's awesome. But then where do you think the funding is going to come from for that? It's well, if you're at the same time, I mean, they're funding hundreds of billions to Ukraine. Like it's nothing, right? There's always money if it's pocketing the right people. Right. So the funding argument I think is a little bit hollow because if you actually look at where the government money is getting spent and that's what I get come back to the social liberal fiscal conservative kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Like, I agree if we could get the money together for the fiscal conservative stuff um, and, you know, it's spent wisely and our government people are not mooching off the money. And, you know, there's not organized crime infiltrating Teamsters unions and moving half out the back door. Right. If, if we could have a system that I trusted in that would be allocated appropriately, I would agree with you there. But so that's almost why I think the. When it comes to fiscal conservatism, like the the kind of discussions have gotten a little bit too distorted, I think. Like it's, I don't know if I'm making sense there, but that was just something. So I was trying to get to all of it. Yeah. Um, On the abortion topic, you know, I've got a lot of thoughts on this one for sure. So I'm glad that you brought it up. So I think it's a, a few things how I would respond to it. I think, again, my perspective was probably pretty similar to yours most of my life. I think now it's a little bit more nuanced for sure. I think a couple of things. I think number one, you know, to say that conservatives are against abortion and just, you know, to blanket right off half the country and to say that yeah. they all have a very specific view on such an important and nuanced topic is a little bit playing into the kind of echo chamber totally. and polarization. Right. Yes. And I think that, you know. Is the whole conversation of first trimester versus second, right? Was there, you know, rape involved? Were they underage? There, there's a, a wide range of people's views about this topic. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, the bigger issue that I find is that I think that both of our party establishments have been corrupted by the interests of 
you know, big corporation and that they very blatantly use techniques to reduce complicated, nuanced topics to a totally. few bullet points, yeah. get the people to hyper-polarize, mm-hmm. yell at each other about yeah. these topics, yeah. and then meanwhile, they're, you know, lifting all our money out the back yeah. door. <laughs> yes. You know what I yes. mean? Yes, yes, yeah. Totally. So that's kind of <laughs> how I feel about kind of ab- abortion from a high level, yeah. you know? And I think that also... The conversation, again, has moved so far from where it started from when, you know, Roe v. Wade was passed 50 years ago. And I think culturally, you know, we really need to examine the underlying issue. And it's like, how do we create a a world and a country where people are – not having to make this decision, right? Where they're, where they're respecting their body and finding love and starting a family when they want to understanding how you get pregnant, having access to things like condom and preventatives and stuff like that. But also, you know, why is it that we have this culture that seems to promote through Hollywood and other things, just wanting sex everywhere, you know, hypersexualization. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to, you know, think about, How can we create a better system, for example, that, you know, kids that, you know, maybe are born to families that, you know, are ready for them, but there's a good pathway for kids to get adopted into homes where maybe the parents, you know, are having trouble having kids. And for whatever reason, like that seems like an easy problem to solve, yet adoption is incredibly expensive. It's super hard. So many of these kids get lost in the system. So, Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think it's it's a bigger cultural topic that we should be having. And then, yeah, you know, I agree. and and look, I think there's some scary stuff when you really start digging into it. And again, I, I, I think it just has to do with our view on life and how we think about, you know, and then look, everyone's got a different perspective on when life begins. Is it conception? Is it birth? You know, and but at the point is, you know, I heard a pretty scary statistic that like, I think in New York City, for example, there are more black babies that are aborted than that are born, you know, and it's pretty crazy to think about. And it's like, how did we get to this point? You know, but what are you defining as a baby? Do you know what I mean? Well, just, I guess a, are you including like a feet, like a literal cell that's seven weeks old? I'm, I'm saying, I think that's probably what that statistic comes from. I'm assuming that yeah. includes any fertilized egg Yeah, would be my guess, yeah. but you know, I don't know. But no, anyway, but I, hear, I, I hear what you're saying at that. At, if it almost doesn't totally matter because we're, what you're saying in that is just clearly like the black community is doing, is having sex as doing something without understanding the full repercussions and then they are trying to scale back or like backtrack in a decision that they made. And it's like, they shouldn't have to be in that situation to begin with. Exactly. And I think a lot of that traces back to some, like the, again, it's misdirection. What are the real underlying issues? Mm -hmm. Oh, we've had generational poverty. Totally. You know, there's Mm -hmm. recidivism in the prisons, right? There's a prison industrial complex. Like Mm -hmm. you start digging into Lyndon Johnson's civil rights policies. Like it actually has, I think really held back the black community in a lot of ways that it created these kind of systemic, financial and judicial injustices that, you know, then that creates the situation where it becomes, you know, you don't, you have less of a nuclear family. It becomes harder to sustain children, which I think leads to, you know, less folks wanting to have them. So mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's, it's just, these are complicated. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. complicated. We, we, we shouldn't reduce it. And then I know it's very and, true. And one other thing, and, and, you know, again, to get to the point of 
why I just think the both the Republican and the Democratic parties are full of shit and just kind of throwing these hollow slogans to divide and conquer because that's what they've always done. That's what powers of establishment always do, just divide yeah. and conquer. That's all they've got. But anyway, you know, you bring up the point about, you know, obviously women having autonomy over their own body and that being um, part and parcel of the abortion conversation, which I fully agree with. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I think that we saw that the democratic establishment in particular and, you know, more of the left-leaning liberal, the members of the populace during the pandemic were some of the most vocally proponents of, if not vaccine mandates, vaccine coercion Mm -hmm. for sure. And Mm -hmm. we can't act like that didn't happen and that, oh, we never thought Mm -hmm. that they were going to stop transmission, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I think it again gets to, you know, advertising and women's right over her autonomy is Mm -hmm. most important thing in the world. If it comes to abortion, but when it comes to vaccines, well, no, Pfizer has control. (laughs) My thought is that I, I hear you and I've had conversations with people on that topic. I think that it's a little bit different because if I walk out the door and I go to Starbucks and I'm pregnant and I get a coffee and I go back into my house. No one that I encountered on that walk was impacted in any way, shape or form by my pregnancy. If I walk out the door and I have COVID and I go to Starbucks and I'm coughing and then I'm in handing someone a $5 bill and then I'm having a conversation with someone and then I'm walking back home those people are potentially affected by my presence. And that's a little bit of a different line. I don't think that, yeah, you should be forced to do anything to your body. But I do think that if you choose not to do those things to your body, that some form of restriction might come along with that because you are impacting the well-being of others around you. And I think that... That argument potentially could hold truth, although I still would push back pretty hard on it. But nonetheless, the vaccines don't stop transmission. Yeah. So yeah, your argument falls flat, I yeah. think. Well, they stop Joe, who you're talking to's grandfather, who potentially has a predisposed position. But, like but, but they don't disease. stop you from transmitting it to him. No, but they stop him from dying. From yeah, it. but then why does it matter if I get the vaccine? Like, you know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. go to other, go around. You know, that, I hear what you're saying. I think it matters more for those people that are like in a vulnerable yeah. position. Yeah, but so then, so yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. <laughs> so I want to go back to uh, your relationship with your sister. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about, you know, you were saying before we started recording that she's kind of been like your your kind of guiding North Star yeah. in your life. Yeah, she's kind of been like my pseudo mom. She's eight years older than me. So we were never really at the same point in life until I would say I, <coughs> excuse me, graduated college. Because at that point, I was an adult, somewhat of an adult, and she was about 30 and like married and was starting to have kids and Mm -hmm. 
So we started to be able to relate on more of a similar plane when I was like a little bit older versus when I was like eight years old and she was 16. We like couldn't relate on anything. And she was like, you're an annoying eight year old. And I'm like (laughs) trying to smoke weed with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that always caused that like relationship of me, like looking up to her and really seeing her as an older. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we've had our ups and downs. Like we've definitely, we're both like very hard headed. We're both very like ambitious. We both always like to be right about things and when you put two people in a room that are like that they're like inevitably gonna butt heads but yeah the good thing is that (laughs) i mean lol because it's like an echo chamber but the good thing for our relationship is that we often have the same opinions about things Uh so we're we're very like boisterous about the same things like we're on the same team so that's kind of nice because otherwise i feel like we would have no relationship at all (laughs) yeah if that was not the case it's sad that politics can divide family like that really but it does i mean it's crazy i mean i my mom is a trump supporter and Mm -hmm. i I'm not going to lie. Like I, it was divisive for sure. I don't think that, I don't know. It's so hard to know to say, because like, I don't want to be like insulting my family on this, but I do think that people who like voted for him, and I know you're not going to agree with this, (laughs) don't put, they put, I don't even know how to say this without sounding so fucked up. But I just think that people that voted for him put human rights issues second to Interesting. things like money and businesses and no i think wealth. i'd certainly understand your perspective there and i used to take a similar perspective for sure when he I'm trying to remember which election it must have been 2020 i came out with a, a video on facebook super against trump and had you know all these arguments against it and i voted for biden etc cetera, etc cetera. I think as I have lost my faith in the establishment media. Mm -hmm. Not anyone. Exactly. And I think I also recognized that when I first got to know Trump as a political person, you know, not just as some random dude on The Apprentice, right? (laughs) I bought what the media was saying about him, hook, line, and sinker. And so, um, and that kind of message has been so hammered into us for the last seven years that... I thought, you know, I've started to challenge if I looked at him, you know, knowing what I know now and kind of had a bit more independent thought coming into 2016, I think I would have felt differently about him. You know, do I, am I saying I'm going to vote for him in 2024? You know, I would strongly prefer Robert F. Kennedy. He is my guy. I love Vivek Ramaswamy too. I would love for the country to have an option between the two of them. I think that Joe Biden has proven to be extremely corrupt. I think all the things that you raise, all the issues you raise about Trump, Biden has been frankly at least as bad, if not far worse than Trump was during his presidency on all those kind of human rights accounts. Really interesting. I really think yeah. that. And so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, and it, again, it's, you know, when you control the narrative and Mr. Biden has no problem sending money over to Ukraine and look like a harsh reality that people have to face that really don't Trump is that he'd started no new wars in his presidency like that. You got to give him credit for that. And that's something that hasn't been done. in I think probably the pre-world or two era seriously like it's pretty crazy so anyway all that's to say but wait you think that biden started a new war ukraine yeah i mean look what's you going think on he started that war 
I think that there are a lot more nuances to the situation between Ukraine and, Ukraine and Russia than the narrative we've been sold. I think that if you look at the expansion of NATO since we won the Cold War in 1991 and we told the Russian Premier Gorbachev that we will not move NATO one inch to the east, we've moved it a thousand miles to the east. There are bases all over Eastern Europe. Ukraine is a hard line, always has been for Russia. So anyway, point is, yeah. I think our military presence in the region is not as an innocent passerby -er, and yeah. we have to recognize that there's a lot more going on in that situation, uh, you know, yeah. that, that benefit a lot of powerful people in yeah. the military industrial complex. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Wait, <laughs> should I go back to my sister? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I keep talk, getting into politics. No, it's good. Um, it's, I love it. Yeah. It just kind of flows all in and out naturally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and also, actually, I think let's, I want to kind of double click on your relationship with your mom a little bit more. So when did she become a Trump supporter? I think since she was always one. So since 2016, yeah, so she, since okay, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, she voted for him in the first election. Both, both she times. She always was a fan. Yeah. Yeah. So... Let me ask you then, was that a marked turning point in your relationship or was it always, you know, a kind of topsy-turvy? Yeah, no, always topsy-turvy. We like have never had a good relationship. <laughs> Politics mainly or other no, stuff? No, other stuff. Yeah. She just is not self-aware and she's not the type of person to try to get deep on issues or really have deep conversations. She's very surface level and money driven and things like that. And it just kind of always rubbed me the wrong way. And so we were just never really close. Like I never wanted to confide in her and my parents like fought a ton when I was growing up. And so I felt, I think from a really early age, I realized like I couldn't like, I had this perspective of, I can't even see them having a successful relationship. Like, why would I rely on them for advice in my own relationships or in my own career yeah, or things yeah, like that? Totally. They can't even get their shit together to not have an argument like every single day. So we don't really have a super close relationship. And I think that kind of led me to lean on my sister a lot more yeah. and my brother-in-law. He's amazing and really smart and very thoughtful and mm -hmm. Yeah. Have they been together for a while? Yeah, they just celebrated their 12-year anniversary, wedding awesome. anniversary. They've been together for, I think, like 17 years. It's crazy. Yeah. Good for them. Really That's awesome. Time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and what about your relationship with your dad? Um, we have a little bit of a better relationship when I'm with my mom, I would say. Like, uh -huh. he's um, like a little bit of a teddy bear. He's like a really nice guy, like very soft-spoken, loves sports, very like... Uh, big Yankees fan. Mm -hmm. He was like born and raised in New Jersey, in an Italian family. And we were really close with his mom, who was my grandma. But yeah, we have a decent relationship. But again, I, he, so he like owned restaurants my whole life. That was like his profession. And I saw like the downside, like the underbelly of that industry and realized that of what industry say the like restaurant industry oh, and like not I realized you know I was not something I wanted to go into the party scene or what about it more just um like how you could have a great restaurant and for whatever reason it's just not like a trendy place to go and then you've poured so much money Sad, into it yeah. and it's not it's successful tough. or you know or if you're working like he owned a lot of bars there were like a lot of like Irish pubs and a lot of the employees were 
big drinkers mm-hmm. and were constantly giving free alcohol and food to their friends that were coming mm-hmm. by. And, you know, like it's sure. hard to track that stuff unless you're like babysitting people 24 seven and you have to have people that you really trust working with you. And he had a couple of those throughout the years. I mean, it was like all he did his whole life. And, yeah. but I just saw the stress it put on him of not knowing who to trust and not knowing what was going to work where and when, and mm-hmm. like, for example, he opened one restaurant in Manhattan and two, it was like in 1999 maybe. And like it, he, they poured like millions of dollars into the renovation and then 9-11 happened mm-hmm. and like people literally stopped like the city was like a different place for like, two years and that was like when they were supposed to be like taking off as a restaurant mm-hmm. and then there was like they poured a bunch of money into some smoke like ventilation system because that was when you could still smoke in bars mm-hmm. and then New York passed was one of the first cities passed law that you couldn't publicly smoke in bars and restaurants mm-hmm. and so Another thing, like another reason people like stopped going out for a little while. They were like, oh, I can't smoke in public. Like, I'm not going to go to this bar then if I can't enjoy my whiskey with my cigarette. Mm -hmm. So like crazy things like that. And so that kind of drove me to want to not. That actually was like one of the main reasons why I think I became someone who works for a big corporation. Yeah. I was like like, the security of it. Totally. And it's not the most secure, you know, at the end of the day, it has just as many risks. Like right For now, sure. Amazon is sales trying to get me and, to sales know, and they're advertising's also, first cut in the down cycle. Exactly. All that stuff. All that stuff. And yeah. I'm trying to, they're trying to get me to go back to the office. I've been working remotely in Denver and now they're saying you have to move back to New York city or you have to quit. No shit. Mm-hmm. Whoa. I didn't realize that. I thought you were just, I, I just assumed that there was a Colorado office. Nope. There is a Colorado <sighs> office for AWS, but not for ads. Could you transfer? They're giving me the option of potentially transferring to New York or LA and... But not AWS here? I, or you, want, you I just don't want to do that? It's not really like my expertise. Yeah, like it's, I don't really it's a little know. more technical. Is that right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm not really like a software sales person. It's like yeah. definitely more technical in the software sales person. I just am not like... I don't know cloud stuff. Yeah, not yeah. software, just cloud sales. I just don't know the cloud that well, so... Wow, crazy. So it's not like the most secure, but it's mm-hmm. different than having my entire like livelihood on the line and having, I don't know, like a very like niche expertise and then being a, like, it's different for you. Like you working in like finance and let's say something were to happen with key, like those skills that you have are like very applicable to a lot of other jobs that you could potentially go out and get. But if I was, you know, a restaurant owner, it's not the same thing. Sure. But I mean, if you can sell, like, I think that's probably the most important skill in any yeah, business. doesn't fucking matter what you're doing. Yeah. You got to learn how to sell. So true. So I feel like you're selling yourself short. I think you would crush it at pretty much anything. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about religion. What has that, you know, I guess, A, what does that word mean to you? And what, and B, what has, what role has religion played in your life? Oh my God. Yeah, it's definitely played an interesting role. I would say the biggest role that it's played, honestly, is like having just friendly, thoughtful debates like this with my peers. I don't, I'm not religious in the traditional sense. I don't pray to God. I would probably call myself more of a Buddhist. Like I believe in infinity and like energy reincarnation and and things like that. But I definitely don't believe in like an end all be all God who's like 
talking to me up there and is a man yeah. and is yeah, yeah. a white man that's five eight and has big beard, yeah, like riding on a thunderbolt. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, it's funny. Like that literally is like laughable to me, and it's, I don't like to like uh, and say that in an insulting way. Like I'm not like. I think, again, people should be able to do whatever they want to do, but it is laughable to me that someone is, like, out there, like, at home, like, talking to themselves, like, talking to what they think is, like, a man in the sky. It just is a little wacky to me because, again, it's, like, what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation, but if you... There is no logic that you can apply to it, right? And I think that's... If you're having a conversation with someone who's really religious and you're trying to have a little bit of like religious debate about something and get to the bottom of it, like they won't have a logical conversation with you because the answer is it's not logical. It's all faith based. You don't have to have proof or you don't have to have reason and you don't have to have like science and nothing like it's all based on just like belief and I just, but I just can't really buy that. Like you're too much of a rational person. Yes, exactly. I'm too much of a rational person. I can't, I like to be able to like reconcile things in my head and make sense of them. And I just think that like Buddhism, in my opinion, is the perfect marriage of what you would call a traditional religion and science. It's like, like when you think of a scientific principle, like matter can neither be created nor destroyed, but only change in form. That literally is a Buddhist principle. Yeah, yeah. That is Buddhism. It's that beautiful. Is, yeah. Like that is saying like you, your physical body can disintegrate into all these pieces, but it's going to come together in like these other forms and re-inhabit life in another like completely different way. And like yeah. your life will re-inhabit you in a different way. And it's not, might not be in like a human form. It could be an animal. It could be yeah, a yeah. refrigerator. Like Anything. So it sounds like your kind of base case scenario is reincarnation exists. Is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I don't know. And I don't, but I don't think it's like in the sense of like a spirit is like an entity. I don't think it's okay. I die and my spirit is one thing that comes out of so my So you don't mouth, believe like in, in a Potter. soul? Is that fair to say? I, yeah, I don't think I believe in an individualistic soul. Okay. Interesting. I believe yeah. in a really everything is the same. For sure. Everything is one. Like. Because For sure. what really gets me to the bottom of that is like the concept of infinity. <laughs> and I am by no means an expert to talk about yeah. infinity. But if you think about outer space and you're just kind of like, where does it end? Right. It doesn't yeah. end. It literally, there's no like wall totally. where all That's of a sudden That's one of the crazy things about ends, it. Right. Yeah. Well, and did you see that just recently they said, oh, hey, we got it wrong. The universe is actually three X as old as we thought it was. Oh my right? God. It's no, crazy. I didn't. That's insane. Yeah. We can't even yeah. conceptualize that. No. That. And, like, we, it, and it just proves we don't know shit about no, we what we're talking about. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting what you bring up about the soul thing. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to fucking overstate my knowledge of Buddhist principles by any means. Me neither, yeah. But I think the, the my understanding is kind of the main division in kind of the, or at least one of the main divisions in some of the larger sects of Buddhism is just this kind of question of, I think they generally universally agree in the kind of concept of the oversoul of the one unified entity, but then they split on, is there also maybe it's like kind of interim mm-hmm. kind of soul, like individual, mm-hmm. but also maybe mm-hmm. two it's not necessarily as individual, but it's not also not infinite. Yeah, right? like I, a, I think spectrum? I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. something that I think about a lot. And, you know, candidly, this was something that that 
kind of resonated with me on a psychedelic journey mm. of I was thinking about this idea of the soul as like a spider web. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a metaphor I've heard in some kind of reference to Buddhist teachings. But, you know, again, I'm just talking out of my ass. <laughs> but anyway, it felt like maybe like the soul is kind of like the joining of where your different lifetimes come together, right? And you carry forward your karmic debts. And so then you meet the, so so your soul is kind of like the sum of the parts of everyone who's impacted you in your kind of experience of duality. Yes. Yeah. Love that. And then like you keep, and then like you keep, and it's like many lives, many masters you recommend. Mm -hmm. And then you like, you keep meeting these Mm -hmm. people in your future lives. And maybe now it's, you know, was your daughter before was your father. Mm -hmm. Right. But you kind of get to keep learning from and working through that karmic debt in multiple lives. Those, but like, even just from a matter principle, like that is a fact, like Uh the skin cell on your face, like it came from somewhere. It didn't just come from nothing. It came totally. from an amalgamation of shit that you're putting in your body and then producing and then growing. And, and But that didn't come from a magician. It originated uh, from other things in the earth. Yeah. Have you ever read Slaughterhouse-Five? Yeah, I love that book. I've got a Kurt Vonnegut tattoo on my you back. Do? From Slaughterhouse-Five, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. What's the tattoo? So it goes. Oh my God. Wow. So yeah. So that kind of reminds me of the book where he's like looking up, he literally talks about like looking over the Rocky mountains and seeing everything in one continuous, like plane of like existence of he's talking about like time. And he's it's been like, a minute since I read it, but yeah, yeah I read it a long time ago too. And I actually think that might have been the only Kurt Vonnegut book I've ever read, but yeah, basically I don't even remember what the full plot was, but I just remember this one part about how they're talking about like how the main character is processing time and he kind of takes this weird step back and can sort of see the entire Rocky yeah. mountain range from an out like a above perspective. And he just sees everything as kind of almost like in, 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 Interstellar. That was a big. Yeah, story. that's exactly what I was just thinking of when you were explaining <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, where it's like everything is existing at the same time, which is also kind of a fact if you think about like light and how everything like registers yeah. with like light refractions. It's like those, like I'm way the way that we're like seeing things and then those things are being recorded in like light waves is like kind of infinite. Like those totally. things are like rippling out. And like, they are all existing at once. (laughs) That's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I love talking about time. Like, I think it's just such a fascinating, crazy concept. And so saying what you're just saying about time being, you know, all happening at the same time, which I I also agree with wholeheartedly. And so how do you think about that fact in light of your experience of time and, you know, living a life of, you know, childhood to adulthood, right? Like, how, yeah. do you, how do you reconcile that trippy fact? Oh, God. I don't know. <laughs> it's really hard. And honestly, this is one of the reasons why I can't do psychedelics because I've had a couple of really scary trips. Yeah, you that told me about that before. Feel almost like I'm bordering like psychosis. Yeah, can we talk about that? I'd love yeah, to know yeah, more totally. about what that experience was like. Oh my God, it was really horrible. And I almost, and I always feel like even today, like the last time I took acid was probably like nine, eight years ago. And I today can feel and put myself back into that feeling 
and how scared I felt like nearly to the same degree. Like I couldn't put myself back into that mental state and it's like a constant thing for me to do, try to do you not. have any idea how high of a dose you did no i think i mean i took two tabs oh that's a lot yeah yeah i mean it was a lot and yeah. i was on other drugs too sure so it was a what lot. else were you on if i, I was on molly uh-huh i've candy flipped before and it yeah. was it was really scary yeah. I'll, I'll never do that okay, again. okay interesting yeah yeah so that's the one probably if i, I had to that. say like i had a bad trip and I, I wouldn't even necessarily i wouldn't say that was a bad trip but just mm-hmm. it was a fucking stupid trip i could have gotten arrested i could have gotten you know like i just was oh, being an oh, idiot so that's terrible so yeah. that's but anyways candy flipping is a bad idea folks noted didn't know that wish someone told me that before <laughs> so yeah so my first acid trip ever i was at camp Bisco in mm. upstate new york and isn't Music that kind of notoriously sketchy as yeah, well yeah it is it yeah. has like a it had a little bit of a sketchy reputation it yeah. was run by hell's angels and yeah they were very i don't know like they would take people's drugs and resell them or take the drugs and take them themselves. And it was kind of lawless in a weird way. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That's weird. It was weird. But yeah, I saw one person right as I was starting to trip, I saw one person die. Oh my God. I didn't know actually in the moment that they had died, but I found out later yeah. that they had died. But also I bet you probably did. Cause you know, when you're in that state, you're, you're hyper aware. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Exactly. It, But actually, I still kicked out of it and was like, I'm fine and kept going. And then we went to a concert Uh that was happening there. Who was it? It was Skrillex. Oh my God, that's like the worst. Worst. I was like, literally fiery hell. I was like drawn. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly like when I tell people the story, I like do that. I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, it was so bad. That's so funny. And in the middle of the crowd, (laughs) this guy started having a seizure And he was pretty close to me. And so everyone was doing the thing with the lights up around him and creating like a circle. And it like just snapped me out of whatever. I was having a fine time. It like snapped me out of whatever trance I was in. Do you know how long into the trip you were at this point? Probably like maybe two hours. Uh Uh-huh. That's when it really, I feel like you fart fucking fire on all cylinders. It was not good. And so then I started panicking. I, my... It was like my focus just got really taken away. You said this away. was like nine years ago? No, this was my, that was the last time I ever did acid. This was my first acid trip. Oh, this is your trip, first time. Which was in 2011, maybe? So you had a really bad first and last time. Oh, I mean, every time I did it, it was horrible. Really? How every many times time. did you do it? Maybe like four. Uh-huh. Dang. I think you're just doing too much. I think so too. That's two two tabs. I don't think I've ever done two tabs, and so for your first time. But that's and that's what's tough about how the war on drugs has just screwed this all of our understanding and approach and the education I stuff. Know. Blah blah blah. But anyway, nonetheless, it, it sucks that I'm, I'm. It's unfortunate that you've had those bad experiences because I feel like if you had your first experience with psychedelics, mm-hmm. you know, now like knowing what you did now, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you're doing it in a, a safer environment you know, they could potentially have been beneficial. I agree. And I think no one told me. And I also think it was like a party mentality. And I was very much in this party crew where I was like trying to be cool and keep up with the amount of drugs people were doing. I wanted to seem just chill about everything. And so I like took this approach of, oh, I'll do whatever and not make it a big deal. And I really wish someone had been like, this is kind of a big deal. Like maybe you should not be at a Skrillex concert. Like we should do it. Like it just was never right. Yeah. But yeah. So then 
right after that, I flipped into this mindset of feeling like I was dead in a hospital bed. Whoa. And I was like looking at my own body and I, or I wasn't dead. I was in a coma. Oh, whoa. And I was in a hospital bed, in a coma. You as Christy or like a Me as Christy. And I could see my family members, including my sister around me, like standing around the hospital bed, looking at me, being super disappointed and being like, I can't believe she would take drugs that would put her into this state. And, And then I proceeded to like, I like peed my pants. Wow. <laughs> it was like really weird. I like lost control of my body. Yeah. Weird shit. But I did call my sister actually while that was happening. Cause one of my friends was like helping me and she helped talk me down. And then I just had to go sit by our tent for the rest of the afternoon. And it was awful, but yeah, it's like, I've had these weird things where I've been like thrown into different States and I that's scary. Like really? Yeah. And yeah, I don't know how, Honestly, I think it's just increased my anxiety in adulthood, which really? is unfortunate. That's too bad. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Have you tried any type of like sound healing? No, I haven't really. I'm starting to potentially explore things like that and also ketamine therapy. Yeah. My that's interesting. therapist is like a big proponent or my psychiatrist is a big pro- proponent of ketamine therapy. And I think I might do it. I've heard yeah. really good things. Yeah. I've um, got some friends who have had really good feedback. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I might. I've okay. tried it a couple of times too. And I really had a good experience. Oh, really? Yeah. At a doctor's office? No. Okay. I was going to say. <laughs> I'm like, wait. Yeah, I'm like literally going to do it through an IV drip. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know you're talking about. In like a controlled environment because Mm -hmm. another part of my like anxiety is tied to kind of what we were just talking about where I don't feel comfortable taking experimental drugs anymore because I don't want to be put into that state of mind. And there's, you know, fentanyl everywhere. Oh, well, that too and all that. Yeah, it's really fucked up. But yeah. yeah. So no, that's interesting. So so let's get back to the co- the religion conversation. Yeah. So what uh, you know you mentioned you went to a private school. Was it uh, religious? It was not. Okay, no. interesting. Yeah. But you did say you like were doing like a Sunday school kind of thing growing up. Is that right? Yeah, I was doing Sunday school. I really, if I think back on it, I honestly, I don't think it was that bad. I don't think it was like that much of a negative influence in any sort of way. Yeah. Definitely just taught me like morality, and it was like something to do after school, and it was like a structured yeah. thing where we got together with people from the church and stuff. And it really was fine. It was more just like when I started to think critically about the Catholic church and yeah. Interesting. Where I was just like the dogma. Absolutely not. Can't even handle. I mean, did you see that study recently that 600 kids over the last 30 years were like abused by members of the Catholic church. And it's really sad. Mid Atlantic area. It's horrible. The, the systemic just like lack of protecting of kids mm-hmm. is in, in these powerful institutions is so sad. Disgusting. You know, it's disgusting. It's horrible. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so branched away from religion, never really. Yeah. Was there anything that caused you to branch away or was you just kind of like a gradual thing as you got older? It was like, I swear, it was like going to college and just meeting yeah. people from like different backgrounds and being like, oh, I have gay friends now and I know people who are gay and bi and yeah. or have a gay parent and that's not weird and no one's being hurt by like anything that they're doing. And so like, why would I like support an institution that like thinks that's yeah. wrong? That makes sense. I'm really like live and let live, you know? And I think that's the, and I think, you know, there's a lot of things that organize religion, at least, you know, the, the powerful ones that, you know, are, are the big influencers in, in modern day society. Right. I think 
there's a lot of places they got it wrong. Um, and, you know, one of them is the focus on, you know, this dogma of, you know, you have to believe this because I think mm-hmm. if we had this encouragement of free thought and we said that science and God are antithetical, but like you're saying in Buddhism, they're mm-hmm. one and the same, but because we get locked in these, you know, Jesus is the one and only. And if you don't accept him, then you're a sinner and you deserve to die. So like when we actually look at what Jesus was saying, it sounds pretty fucking Buddhist. Totally. Agree. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then what's wild is there's yeah. all these theories that there's 20 years of Jesus's life in the new Testament that are missing. A lot of credible scholars, including the Vedic tradition themselves, say that he went to India and studied the secrets no of the way. ancient wisdom. Oh it's God. crazy. That's so crazy. I have the chills. It's That's wild. wild. I it's hope wild. that is true. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. It's just that people take the Bible as the end-all, be-all text when in reality that text has been translated more than any other sure. book in the history of the world. So we're going to go off of the book. called the King James Bible. Yeah. Like, the king obviously has yeah. a vested interest in, you know, what you think. Yeah. <laughs> and we're gonna Give go me off. all the money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ask any questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's funny. But yeah. And then when you also think about just like Islam, it's okay. If we want to just go off of whoever's saying my religion is the number one, if we're going by like pure population, yeah, that's the number one religion. Yeah. And if we're going, if that is what actually is true, then every single person who's Christian is quote unquote wrong. So right, it's like, exactly. to your point, it's, it's like so you logical. have to believe in all of it. There right. is no right. one is wrong and one is right. And yeah. I just, I really can't get behind that. And that's, I don't know. Yeah. 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 So how would you, you know, classify your views on like the word spirituality? Like, I think that, you know, when people ask me if I'm religious, like I, I love the history of religion mm-hmm. and I love exploring all these ideas of thought and kind of how we came to where we are and, all that stuff, but religion to me kind of implies dogma. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not necessarily fair, but I think that the Latin root religar comes from to Ooh. bind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? that's a little trivia yeah. fact for the day. <laughs> so, so to me, that's why I prefer the term spirituality because I think it's getting at the same, you know, human human nature and I mean our higher human self of wanting to know what are we here for what is our purpose you know what is this reality right oh my god a hundred percent yes and then and so you can get that but also with the free thought to talk it out in open debate and say but it also has to make sense for what we're seeing scientifically in our reality and and all that stuff mm-hmm. and let's have let's have that conversation you know let me practice how i want to you know obviously it's i have had great experience with psychedelics you haven't right but you've had other modalities that are working better for you and you're figuring like what else you can do to hopefully achieve a similar effect and not get into that tough mental space again mm-hmm. so it's so i think that's all to say you know to me i think that idea of direct experience of divine of spirituality of what does God mean to you incorporating if you choose what Jesus said and what the Catholic church says and what, you know, the Sufis said and all that stuff. Right. And then deciding for yourself what makes sense. I totally agree with you because I mean, if you really think about the origin of all religion, you just said this basically, but it was created to help people explain and feel better about their existence. Yeah. 
And so if that is, if your religion is like deviating from that at all and making you feel worse about your existence and saying, no, you can't be gay and no, you can't uh-huh. do this and no, you have to live by these principles and, or else you're going to go to hell and all these. It's, that's interesting because yeah. literally the whole reason that this came about from the very get go was because people didn't have an explanation for what happens after you quote yeah. unquote die. Yeah. And so we're trying to make one up. And we're just trying yeah. to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And that's exactly what you're saying. It's however you practice. If you want to take a tab of acid and I don't want to do it, like that makes you feel better and it doesn't make me feel good. Like, fine, do it. As long as you're not harming yeah. anyone else and you're not like telling other people what to do, you should be able to do it. Yeah. I totally. Believe totally. That. Yeah. Totally. And I think that's one of the cool things about this confluence of different spiritual traditions that I feel like have really, you know, found each other. And I think in the age of the internet with YouTube and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, it's just, it's all starting to build on each other at such an awesome and compounding rate, right? And there's this phrase from the Rick Veda that I love that's, truth is one, the wise call it many names. And I think that's kind of this convergence we're seeing right now. Have you, in talking about reincarnation, have you heard of the Nag Hammadi Gospels? No. Okay, let me go grab it. I gotta show you this. Okay. Wait, what was your quote? Truth is one. Why is all Whoa, I love that. Thank you. Okay, I wanna do that. Yeah. Wait, have you heard this quote? My favorite quote? It's a Confucius quote. And it's you have two lives and your second life begins when you realize that you only have one. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Good one, right? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, the Nag Hammadi Gospels. Speaking of reincarnation, heard about this actually, but you you might have. So they they were discovered in 1947, I think it was. Two years after, you know, World War II ends Mm -hmm. and we dropped a couple nuclear bombs. So it's kind of like that gives another mystical element to it, right? Mm -hmm. But there were some scrolls that were found in Egypt. Nag Hammadi is a town in Egypt. And they were just found by some, you know, little boy who was, I think, like out like shepherding his goats or something like that. And threw a rock and heard it. A pot shatter went and found them. No way. What we think they are some early books of Christian and pre-Christian philosophy Mm -hmm. that were, that were taken from the library of Alexandria in the third century B or sorry, the third century AD and were saved, you know, for preservation because this was the time period when the church fathers got together at the council of Nicaea in 325 and formally set church doctrine and formally decided which books were part of the new Testament and which ones weren't. Well, and so these are all the ones that they purposely excluded. Whoa. At least that's the, you know, the conspiracy theory, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So anyway, so yeah. So as people have taken a look at, you know, kind of what books were, what these were said. Yeah. And another crazy idea, you know, obviously who knows, but, you know, some of the people who are into this stuff think that these were the books that were Jesus's teachings after he returned from death. Oh, okay. So they're almost Whoa. like his most enlightened teachings. Whoa. And anyway, one of the pretty significant differences of what was in the Nag Hammadi Gospels versus what's in official church doctrine yeah. is that he was a strong proponent of resurrection as being a you know continuous part of life. Mm-hmm. And like in Catholic Church, for example, we have this imp- – they like – and may- maybe I'm misunderstanding. You know, I didn't go to Catholic Church, so my mom was Catholic, so I'm like somewhat familiar with the, mm-hmm. the area. But anyway, point is they kind of have this pr- – 
depiction of the crucifixion is this horrible event of church. You know, if Christ died for your sins and you're a horrible person and you need to flagellate yourself, yeah. you know, at least that's maybe how it's portrayed in the media. Mm-hmm. But if you look at what Christ says about when he was crucified, he's, I was laughing because I saw the folly of their ways and I knew that my death was nothing and that life is eternal and that, you know, I was laughing and I felt pity for these people mm-hmm. who were burning mm-hmm. me at the stake. And I just, I think that's such... It's so subtle in a way, but it's so profoundly different that, it, you know, out and just kind of outlook of life and death. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah. He was basically like not afraid when he was like on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. Crucified. He was yeah. like, he was like next to two people. And I forget the story. It's like one looked at him and asked for forgiveness or something. And he was like, I forgive you. And then. I don't know, it was like the other one didn't, but the one who did was like then also not afraid to die or something. Interesting. Or something like yeah, that, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I do, I like, I really like thinking of life and death in that way because it allows you to not have any like fear at all. Mm-hmm. Because it, you know, like it's, everything that you're doing on earth, I believe, like I said, is infinite. So if I love my boyfriend, which I do love him so much, I believe that love is like an infinite thing and carries on beyond our lifetime. And that just sounds sappy, but no, I totally, I believe. And so it's not because I die, that's not going to go away. Like it will remain in the history of, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's, it's not scary to think of death when you do kind of approach it from that perspective. I, I agree. Like, and I think that fear of death really permeates our society and it manifests itself in a lot of ways mm-hmm. that people probably don't even recognize. Oh, but yeah. it's very, you know, important. Oh my God. Like plastic surgery, trying to look totally. younger, getting like PRP, like injected into your mm-hmm. body and your face to look four years younger, all that shit. Yeah, yeah. And that's like a big industry that's like just fueled by that. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. It really is. Oh, shit. What was I just going to ask you? <laughs> oh, yeah. So you talk about a really important concept, love. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is the fundamental nature of love? Like the principles of it or what makes well, it Well, you up, talked or? about kind of how it's this infinite, unbounded energy, right? Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. completely agree with mm-hmm. you there. And so there's obviously, you know, the romantic love that, but I think, and I want to say that, you know, the Vedic tradition has something like seven different types of words for love, right? Mm -hmm. It's, I think, a much more complicated concept Mm -hmm. for sure. So, you know, feel free to take this question however you want. Mm -hmm. But I think specifically I'm getting at, you know, you talk about that unbounded nature of love. Like, what does that mean for that emotion, for the nature of reality? Like what, you know, does that question make sense? Yeah, kind of. I'm trying to think of yeah. my answer. Here, here's maybe I can, I can give you a little bit more context if it's helpful. Yeah. I think for me, when I had my spiritual awakening, I, I don't know if we've talked about this specific story before. I can't remember. Okay. But it was, you know, I was just, I had in, been introduced to some kind of more metaphysical concepts that really opened up my eyes to the idea that science and God are, you know, one and the same. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then I decided to take a high dose of LSD, took it, you know, started meditating very deeply. I was just getting into meditation and, you know, kind of had this breakthrough moment where I had that moment of ego dissolution. Mm -hmm. And during that experience, I felt as if 
the entire cosmos was love. And it proved to me that that there is no death. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Okay, I have had nothing as profound. Like, there was nothing that I was doing that led me to that. But I have had two experiences of that reading books randomly. Uh I remember I was reading a book on my balcony where at my old apartment and I had a quick, it was like a fleeting moment. And it's like, if you think about it in contextual terms, it's probably what like the closest I'll ever be to like reaching Nirvana where you have a a moment of clarity where you're like, you see everything as it's supposed to be in like perfect order. Yeah. And you, and that is kind of where I came, like had that feeling of like love is infinite and everything is like everlasting and everything is fine and going to be fine and it will forever be fine kind of thing. Yeah. But it was literally just from reading a book. And I yeah. was like, had like a moment with a passage that I That's was That's so cool. So that book I just grabbed, yeah. it's called The Supreme Awakening by Dr. Greg Pearson. Oh my God. It's great. And he documents all through history, all through different cultures, the exact experience you're talking about. Wow. This mystical experience of nirvana mm-hmm. is a real phenomenon. And we can see it if we look at the scriptures. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like cocky, though I've reached nirvana, but I think that I had a literal one second in my entire life fleeting moment of feeling like that. Well, and I think, you know, not to cut you off, but, you know, one of the things that I've started to believe as a fundamental truth as I've explored more kind of Eastern philosophy is that what you're having in that experience that you had that I had on psychedelics Mm -hmm. is a glimpse into the possibility of a permanent state of enlightenment Mm -hmm. that we humans are capable Mm -hmm. of evolving to a higher spiritual nature Mm -hmm. that we never, that exceeds the realm of possibilities that we've limited ourselves to believe we can achieve. Yes. I mean, we're limiting ourselves every day. It's, you know, we'll have this conversation and then I'll go home and continue my like stupid routine and it's, I'm not going off and becoming like a monk. And <laughs> I probably could be or should be or like all these, and you know, I don't know. Well, but it's also back to the, all the stuff we're talking about before, right? Where we're having, where we've got all kinds of crazy political issues in our country, all kinds of financial hardships, right? Just a, a society that's based on crony capitalism that doesn't, you know, that is almost by definition antithetical to a lot of these morality principles mm-hmm. that we're taught. It's really hard to figure out how to navigate that mm-hmm. and to feel like you're self-actualizing yes. as best as you can. Yeah, it is. You have to thread a very thin line. You do. You do. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like you want to play by the rules and you kind of want to be perceived as normal and you want to have like goals that are like rooted in reality and like with that comes a lot of times money and being fiscally successful and and then it's like the further down that line you go the further away you sometimes get from these things but yeah that's why it's like super intentional have to come back to all of this stuff and setting aside time to be meditative and whatever that means i actually do feel like for me personally exercising is a lot of that like i'm really sorry feel very present when I'm exercising or doing yoga or anything that's giving me a lot of endorphins, I feel closer to my, my body and myself and my awareness and the current moment. And I just think that is like something that we could all do every single day to try to get back to the basics of let's like, remember that like, I'm a human, you're a human. Like I have feelings, you have feelings, like all the stupid things, like 
that are obvious, but not so obvious when you're like on a work call and someone's like yelling at you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Sorry. No worries. Bad cough. I know. Um, I'm going to read all of these. It's crazy. It's so awesome. Yeah. I think I was reading one of the books I was reading when I had that moment was like one of, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> He's like a... I know of him. He was like a monk of this thing called the Plum Dynasty in Tibet. A and friend of mine is really into him, and I've yeah, been to do research. He passed Jackie away recently, okay, cool. but um, did he have involvement in the um, place in Colorado? Or am I getting him mixed up with another guy? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like a school yeah. here. Oh no, it's no, not okay, the same. never mind then. That school is in the one in Boulder. You know what I'm talking about? Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. called mm-hmm. Naropa University. So back to Tikatnan. Yeah. No, I mean I was just talks about all, mindfulness is one of the biggest teachings of his and also one of the books I read just happened to be on mindfulness and it's he just really breaks it down of nothing you're doing in your day-to-day life should be like routine you should never be like I mean I'm paraphrasing because he doesn't say you should never blah 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 but it's you should never be like washing the dishes or walking down the street just trying to get from point a to point b or trying to finish the dishes like you're just like lighting time on fire like you should be like living in that moment and like fully like happy that you have that like second you know what I mean of, even if you're doing a chore that yeah it's like kind of annoying. And, and, and while you were reading about that concept you experienced yeah, it that's, that's kind that's of so like cool. when I was like I had a flash second of yeah. just being like oh I get it it was yeah like a, yeah it yeah. was like a it's like nearly impossible to put it into words but yeah. all I remember was epiphany was, yeah it was an epiphany but yeah. it was like all I remember thinking was like I get it now yeah like, I get it but, yeah. but then it goes away and you kind of try to like totally. grasp you it got and you want to yeah. like chase it and hold it, but like it doesn't. And that's like stick. part of the whole Buddhist joke. Exactly. It's funny. It's yeah. the cosmic joke of life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's cool though. It's cool. So have you found ways to successfully get, you know, get closer to that state of mind again? There are certain things that I think are really like specific to me that make me feel like very present. Like again, just like exercising. I really love animals. Like anytime I'm like with dogs or like. How about like nature? Yeah, nature. That's like definitely one of the main reasons why I like like I live here. I just feel like it's very, you know, being able to go hiking and be in the woods by yourself within 30 minutes is like amazing and I, yeah, just like little things like that on a day to day basis, but nothing crazy. Yeah. I have not gotten into meditation. I tried to start doing like a morning journaling thing, but it, that's really a good idea. Pretty quickly. When, I've never been able to keep that I habit know. up either. It's funny. Ugh, it sucks. People yeah. that do it really like it, but yeah. Yeah. What about you? I mean, do you have any way of getting back there without? Drugs? I do. Yeah, for sure. I've sure. started doing transcendental meditation. Oh, okay. That's been the biggest thing for me. And so I do that twice a day and that's kind of my baseline. But then there's other stuff I do too. You know, I do yoga too. I think, and you know, it's like we're saying it's, I stopped drinking. That was actually before oh, yeah. my awakening, mm-hmm. but I think that's contributed a lot yeah. to me just, you know, getting more in touch with myself. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, kind of like we're talking about it. It's kind of always the 80, 20 rule, right? Like you can talk about your kind of epiphany, having that reading mm-hmm. moment, or, you know, I can talk about my psychedelics experience, but at the end of the day, it's what gets you you know, it's, it's all the stuff you already know anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Eating healthy, getting good rest, being, being spiritual, caring about your community, being totally. in nature. It's mm-hmm. like all the stuff that's so, duh, you know, it's just, but it's, it's just, you gotta to build do. a habit. It is. Yeah, it's hard to do. 
It is. Yeah. It's hard. It's in the hustle bustle and the rat race. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. And then, you know, the other part of it, which we were kind of talking about tying back to like why, you know, potentially having religion and politics drive a wedge between certain people in your life and yeah. you and things like that. It's You want you maintain friendships and you have friendships that don't necessarily have these things as principles or they don't prioritize them as much as you do. And that's fine. And yeah. like, that shouldn't be a reason for you to not be friends with those people. But then, I agree. But then when you are friends or, you know, you spend time with people like that, it can take you away from these things. So it's like kind of interesting. It's an ebb and flow for sure. Yeah, It's like, it's all about, it it can be isolating. It is. Yeah. yeah. And like, I've definitely found that since starting entangled, you know, I think, um, some of my more like straight laced friends, I've I've certainly noticed that like, they are not as close as they used to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I totally understand. And I Mm -hmm. don't beget anyone, any issues for that. Right. And I think it's, we're all on our soul own soul's journey. Like Mm -hmm. when the time is right, we'll meet again. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I've gotten to, meet so many amazing new people and learn their perspectives and have this type of amazing conversation with you that you and I would have never gotten together to just talk about. Right. That's true. So it's cool. Yeah, I know it it is interesting. It's, it is that ebb and flow. It's you kind of have to like constantly be like checking back in with yourself and constantly be like reminding yourself of, no, I know these things and I know these things are good for me and carve out time for them in whatever way that you can. Yeah. What type of exercise do you like to do? What like gets you in that flow state the most? I like everything. And I do yeah. really cardio heavy things. Like I think I, that's important. Yeah. You got to get that in. Yeah. yeah. But I do. I mean, I love like yoga flows. I do Me a too. lot of spinning. I just did orange theory. Mm-hmm. I like to. Do you do like class pass? I have class pass, but uh-huh. I also just signed up for a membership at orange theory. Uh-huh. It's, I really like it. And I like yeah. need to lift more weights and I never lift weights. So I like know, this weight is getting me to important do it. Too. Yeah. So it's like you run on the treadmill and then you do like a combination of weightlifting and rowing on the erg. But yeah, it's all, I just feel like very present. And I do feel like when post-college, when I was like drinking a lot, mm-hmm. I got like a personal trainer, which was way beyond my means. Like I did mm-hmm. not have the money for it. And I was like, yeah, personal <laughs> trainer living in Manhattan. <laughs> and, but I swear to God, I was also like starting talk therapy at the time. Yeah. And I swear to God, getting this personal trainer and getting into physical shape helped my mental state. Totally. A hundred times over more than talk therapy. I mean, the talk therapy, I don't want to shit on it. I still do it. And I think it's amazing. But I think, did you watch Stutz? No, what is that? Really? The Jonah Hill documentary? Oh, I heard about it, but I didn't watch it. You have to watch it. Yeah. And he has all these little kitschy principles for getting through hard times and thinking about yourself and how to just you know approach the world and things like that but like one of his principles is like he has like a literal formula for getting out of depression and I never had depression but he has three to four like principles and he basically like whenever he's like talking to a patient he's I can guarantee you if you follow these four principles you will not be depressed any longer like the number one thing is like move your body and exercise number two is like maintain interpersonal relationships. Number three is, I don't know, hygiene. I'm making that one up. I don't know. But I know the two ones are like exercise and interpersonal relationships. And it's so true. It's totally, if you just like connect with yourself and connect with others, yeah. it solves like 99% of problems. I mean, body and mind are just to me so interconnected. Mm-hmm. It's like, how could it, you know, how could it not be? It's, you know, it's, you know, when you like see a wild animal or whatever, like mm-hmm. you're in a fearful state, like you're tense, like mm-hmm. you're, you're like, you know, it's in 
that's not the natural state for us to be in, right? You should be fucking moving your yeah. body, flowing. Just like- so yeah, I love it. I I think exercise is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. I feel like we talked about going to yoga, but we never did. Yeah, we, we should do, do that. It. I just joined Core Power. Oh, let's you did? Do that. Yeah. Okay, I go to Core Power on class pass. So Hell yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's find some time. I'm very down. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Christy, with that, this has been just such an amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel like I'm not an expert on anything, but I can talk about any topic and I have opinions on everything. I love it. That's what's great. That's why I am such a proponent of free speech and open discourse and just, you know, let's the way to heal the crazy polarization is not to keep digging our feet in and yelling louder. It's to get together and just talk about like, how can we come together? I could not agree more. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Christy. You're the best. (laughs) Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this conversation, Christy and I discussed moments of awakening, those ineffable experiences of pure clarity, of unity, of unboundedness. Many have experienced these transcendental moments throughout the ages, but few have been able to describe them. Even fewer have been able to recreate those experiences, often instead finding that the harder they strive, the more those experiences elude them. In our conversation, I mentioned the books The Supreme Awakening, Experiences of Enlightenment Throughout Time, and How You Can Cultivate Them by Craig Pearson. In his book, Dr. Pearson studies spiritual, philosophical, and literary works from different cultures throughout different ages. He extracts their descriptions to find commonalities. Pearson further makes the case that this brief epiphany of cosmic consciousness is one which can be made permanent through the use of consciousness-expanding technologies such as transcendental meditation. Here are the characteristics Dr. Pearson describes in these Encounters of Spiritual Awakenings. Quote, what is this experience like? We can locate first-hand descriptions of this experience in the writings of people throughout history. Here are some of the qualities they ascribe to these moments. Inner expansion, clarity, wakefulness. These experiences involve expansion of awareness and extraordinary inner lucidity. More than 2,500 years ago, Lauza wrote that in this state, one's mind becomes as vast and immeasurable as the sky. Henry David Thoreau describes moments when we become like a still lake of purest crystal, moments of serene and unquestionable wisdom. Alfred Lord Tennyson describes experiencing a state of transcendent wonder associated with absolute clearness of mind. During the past century, Thomas Merton, the American writer and Trappist monks, describes moments during which our soul suddenly awakens us to a new level of awareness, making the ordinary waking state seem like sleep in comparison. French playwright Eugene Ionesco describes similar experiences, concluding, It is as if we lived in a profound lethargy. We wake up for a few moments from time to time, then we sink into empty sleep again. Happiness and Bliss This experience brings an infusion of happiness, joy, and bliss. Angela of Foligno, the 13th century Italian author, writes, My soul was in unutterable joy. The Canadian novelist Lucy Maud Montgomery describes feeling so happy that her happiness seemed to irradiate the world with its own splendor. Claire Luce Booth, the American writer, congresswoman, and ambassador, describes how joy abounded in all of me, or rather, I abounded in joy. Czech Republic President Václav Havel's experiences brought him supreme bliss and infinite joy. Experience of Underlying Reality 
Along with this joy often comes a sense of profound knowledge of direct perception of underlying reality, ordinarily inaccessible. Writes Lauza, one finds the anchor of the universe within himself. The novelist Arthur Kostler writes, its primary mark is the sensation that this state is more real than any other one has experienced before. That for the first time the veil has fallen and one is in touch with real reality, the hidden order of things. The Experience of the Divine A number of writers describe this underlying reality as divine. When one experiences this reality, writes the Chinese sage Zhuangzi, his life is the working of heaven, and he mingles with the heavenly order. Plato writes that in this state, the soul is in the very likeness of the divine and immortal, adding, this state of the soul is called wisdom. Ralph Waldo Emerson describes these moments as an influx of the divine mind into our mind. Walt Whitman declares that we reach the divine levels and commute with the unutterable. A feeling of naturalness and familiarity. Extraordinary though these experiences are, at the same time they are utterly natural. One feels one has come home. Thomas Merton writes, We enter a region which we had never even suspected, and yet it is this new world which seems familiar and obvious. You seem to be the same person, and you are the same person that you have always been. In fact, you are more yourself than you have ever been before. You have only just begun to exist. You feel as if you were at last fully born. Eugene Ionesco expresses it like this, I suddenly entered the heart of reality so blindingly obvious, so total, so enlightening, so luminous, that I wondered how I had never before realized how easily this reality was to find and how easily I found myself in it. The English writer Rita Carter says, All my experience up until now has been in some sense unreal, adding it all felt entirely natural. The Moment of a Lifetime those fortunate enough to have such an experience reverence it as the supreme moment of their lives, the touchstone by which all other experience is evaluated. The English writer Edward Carpenter observes, The fact of its having come even once to a man has completely revolutionized his subsequent life and outlook on the world. More than this, many people declare that only such experiences deserve to be called life. For the first time we exist, writes Ralph Waldo Emerson. Tennyson regarded this experience as the only true life. American writer Franklin Merrill Wolf says it gives a feeling of being alive, beside which the ordinary feeling of life is no more than a mere shadow. We find descriptions of these experiences in the writings of scientists and artists, writers and composers, monks and explorers, philosophers and athletes, in autobiographies and journals, poems and letters, lectures and novels. These moments are described in strikingly similar terms by people from different times, different cultures, different religions. As Edward Carpenter puts it, of the existence of this type of experience, there is evidence all down history and witnesses far removed from each other in time and space and race and language and perfectly unaware of each other's utterances agree so remarkably in their testimony that there is left no doubt that the experience is as much a matter of fact as any other human experience. Where is the button? On the one hand, we have a class of experiences that appears universal. It has been described by people throughout history, throughout the world. The people who have had these experiences, moreover, hold them in the highest regard. Ionesco, sensing the enormous potential of these moments, writes, The interior mechanism that can set off this state of supernormal wakefulness, that could set the world ablaze, that could transfigure it, illuminate it, is able to function in the simplest, most natural way. All one need do is press a button. Only it is not easy to find this button. 
we fumble about for it in the shadows. On the other hand, these experiences appear by most reports to be rare, fleeting, and unpredictable. Evidently, few who describe such experiences could deliberately induce them. If the experience is so simple, natural, and valuable, why can't we have it at will? Is there some way to elicit it? Where is the button? And what is its larger significance? End quote. Pearson goes on to argue that this button can be found in meditation. That through the repeated integration of what the Vedic tradition refers to as the fourth state of consciousness, transcendental consciousness, with our waking state consciousness, one can eventually achieve a permanent state of enlightenment. In this state, that fleeting moment of unity exists permanently alongside our waking state consciousness, enabling the enlightened individual to experience 200% of life. On Substack, I've included Dr. Pearson's description of the seven states of consciousness according to Maharishi Vedic Science. We see this technical advice for going inward not just in the Vedic tradition, but in spiritual traditions throughout the world. Dr. Pearson highlights how we find the summons to go within. Quote, Hence the inscrutable God is called silent by the divine ones and is said to consent with mind and to be known to human souls through the power of the mind alone. Zoroastrianism, Zoroaster, 11th to 10th century BCE, Iran. One who knows others is intelligent. One who knows himself is enlightened. Taoism, Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, 600 BCE, China. Know thyself. Temple of Apollo at Delphi in Greece, circa 500 BCE. Be a lamp unto your own feet. Do not seek outside yourself. Buddhism, Gautama Buddha, circa 6th to 4th century BCE, Nepal in India. What the superior man seeks is in himself. What the ordinary man seeks is in others. Confucianism, Confucius, 551 to 479 BCE, China. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Christianity, Jesus Christ, circa 5 BCE to 30 CE. Look within. Within is the fountain of good, and it will ever bubble up if thou wilt ever dig. Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, 121 to 180, Roman Emperor. This region of truth is not to be investigated as a thing external to us. It is within us. Neoplatonism, Platonus, 205 to 270, Egypt and Italy. Call yourself back then to yourself, O soul, and seek in yourself all that you ought to get knowledge of. Hermetic writings, 2nd to 3rd centuries, Egypt. Go not outside, but return within thyself. In the inward man dwelleth the truth. Christianity, St. Augustine, 354 to 430, Algeria. The greatest wisdom is to know thyself. Judaism, the Talmud, 200 to 500, Israel. The heavens are still, no sound. Where then shall God be found? Do not search in distant skies. In man's own heart he lies. Confucianism, Xiaoyang, Confucian philosopher, 1011 to 1077, China. Why do you go to the forest in search of God? He lives in all and is yet ever distinct. He abides within you too, as fragrance dwells in a flower, and reflection in a mirror. So does God dwell inside everything. Seek him therefore in your heart. Sikhism, Guru Granth Sahib, 15th to 17th centuries, India. The human mind, partaking of divinity, is an abode of the deity, which is the spiritual essence. There exists no highest deity outside the human mind. Shintoism, Hayashi Razan, Shinto and Confucian philosopher, 1583 to 1657, Japan. End quote.
Comparative religious scholars have found recurring themes throughout the ages. These themes have been termed the perennial philosophy and include this emphasis on direct experience of divinity. Eknathi Swaran summarized the highest common factor of all theologies in his introduction to the Bhagavad Gita. Number one, there is an infinite, changeless reality beneath the world of change. Number two, the same reality lies at the core of every human personality. And number three, the purpose of life is to rediscover this reality experientially, that is, to realize God while here on earth. Humanity currently sits at a critical juncture point between the age of Pisces and the age of Aquarius, where it feels that we are finally remembering the lessons of the perennial philosophy, where we are rediscovering the spiritual technologies of the past, the hermetic principles by which our cosmos and our physiology operate. As we do, will we also discover that enlightenment is our birthright? I hope so. I hope that the experience of spiritual awakening becomes readily accessible by individuals around the world and that in turn, human civilization learns to favor spiritual enlivenment over technological progress and wealth creation. In closing, here is a section of William Wordsworth's 1978 poem, Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, describing his experience of supreme awakening. That blessed mood in which the burthen of the mystery, in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened. That serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on, until the breath of this corporeal frame, and even the motion of our human blood, almost suspended, we are laid asleep, and body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. Thank you.